Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach. Today's guest is retired Battalion Chief Dave Egan. Chief Egan began his 32-year fire service career in 1976 as a firefighter paramedic for the city of Chattanooga Fire Department. In 1983, he accepted a firefighter paramedic position with Orange County Fire Rescue. He worked his way up through the ranks and retired in 2008 as a battalion chief. Chief Egan has a bachelor's degree in fire science and emergency management, graduating summa cum laude from Purdue University and spent the years following uh, his retirement as a consulting instructor on fire ground management, first arriving strategy and tactics, and is co-author of Emergency Management Institute National Training and Education Division courses for active shooter incident management, active shooter incident management with complex incidents, and active threat integrated response course. My relationship with Chief Egan, at that time he was Lieutenant Egan, so my relationship with him began when he was serving as a union rep for IAFF Local 2057. He was very active in the union, as uh, you know, I know from personal experience through working with him and getting to know him that he um, has strong beliefs in labor, labor laws, and uh, you know, the strength of a union goes to the core of the success of an organization, in my opinion, and I think he would agree with me. It uh, was in that capacity that he worked to defend me when I when I actually needed the union the most in my very young fire service career. This podcast titled uh, From Embers to Excellence, I took that as I've made a lot of mistakes in my career and in my personal life, and I've used those failures, those hiccups, those bumps in the road along the way to really improve myself. And I would say that most of the people that I'm very close to have all experienced some bumps in the road and have turned those bumps into ramps that uh, take them to bigger and better things. So I've used those examples from people in my life to really turn, uh, turn my mistakes into opportunities. With all that being said, I'd like to introduce Chief Egan and you know, maybe get a little bit of what took you into the fire service, maybe um, some influences in your life. Well, uh, first of all, David, thank you very much for the invitation to participate in your podcast, uh, Embers to Excellence. And, and thank you for all those uh, glowing accolades. I, I I started out uh, in a volunteer organization. Uh, I had a neighbor who I'd grown up in high school with who, who I knew very well and we associated. And he was a member of the volunteer rescue squad in the town I, I, I grew up in. 
um, the, the county rescue service, and it was all volunteer. And you would stand by on the weekends. You'd go and you would you would spend the evening till midnight, one o'clock, at, at an old fire station that the city had allowed them to take over. You you sometimes would even spend the night there. They had it was an old fire station, so it had headquarters. Uh, and you would go out when they ever had extrications, extrications or searches, things that the uh, the fire the the, the the full career fire department uh, and and the county organizations, which were all volunteer didn't have the resources to take care of. So, so we were the volunteers. And that's how I got bitten by the bug. That's when I, I uh, got my EMT training, started learning about the fire service and law enforcement and, and, and really gravitated toward taking care of patients. I, I always uh, liked first aid when I was in Boy Scouts and all those kind of things. So, so this was a natural progression. And due to that uh, volunteer experience, I applied for and got a job with the city fire department um, because I was an EMT, you had to remember this was in the this was in the early and mid seventies when EMS was just coming of age. You know, sixty nine it was down in Miami with them, and at the same time out in Los Angeles when paramedics the paramedic uh, 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 avocation started getting traction in Congress with the laws that they did, and I kind of got caught up in that way and uh, became a paramedic in seventy six and. And the rest is pretty much history with what you stated in the introduction. And that's, that's how I got my start on this path of, of uh, public service. I'd like to touch on your post-retirement uh, consulting. How did you get involved with all of the active shooter uh, training? I, I will try to make it brief, which is very, very difficult for me to do. Uh, I tend to be uh, a very detailed organization. Person. When I was a principal officer with the local and, and uh, used to defend people and do contract negotiations, I probably got myself in trouble a lot by being very detailed and, and trying to tell all the facts at one time if you can like that. But what occurred when I retired, obviously I, I reached that point where I realized that uh, it was a young man's job. And you were called Deputy Chief Bill Godfrey, who led the EMS division in Orange County from 1999 until uh, his departure from the department in 2006, I believe. And I worked very closely with him uh, in the EMS division. Obviously I was an EMS supervisor and a lieutenant and, and EMS has always been one of my, uh, my loves. So I, I knew Bill and when he, he retired from the department, went to be fire chief in Deltona, Florida as their fire chief and he I, I taught some classes up there, some strategy and tactics classes to his department there in Deltona. And then from there, when he left that department, uh, he opened a consulting business called futurefd.com. And that was uh, focused on teaching strategy and tactics to new officers, um, uh, try to prepare and, and mentor upcoming firefighters into the, the stresses and the uh, complexities of incident command, decision-making under stress. And that, we started traveling the state giving those classes. And as we uh, traveled to the state, a lieutenant with Jacksonville Fire Department who actually went up to the state EMS offices, uh, Bruce Scott, um, mentioned one day, really after a class at a bar, obviously, uh, we started talking about the future of consulting and fire service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, long conversation. And he wrote down, or he said, you know, this active shooter stuff that people are, you know, doing all this stuff. He says, 
you know, if you were to go want to get into something, that's where to go. So everybody's going to be clamoring for this kind of training. And Bill and I kind of looked at it at the same time, and it was like we got hit in the face. You know, like, wow, okay. Now, how did a couple of old fire guys, paramedics, get into law enforcement stuff, you know, law enforcement training? And our, our expertise, obviously, was incident command and, and, and crisis, you know, incident management. It really doesn't matter whether it's a law enforcement based, EMS based, or just a, a natural disaster. The incident command envelope applies to all, and it's scalable and adjustable. But it takes training and knowledge of how to how to move the pieces around to where it fits that circumstance. And uh, we started uh, educating ourselves and surrounding ourselves with law enforcement types. Uh, retired deputy. Uh, Chief Deputy of the Orange County Sheriff's Office joined our organization, Ron Ottobacher. Uh, we had more fire guys in there. We had some law enforcement guys from Texas, from the Advanced uh, Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Group out of the University of Texas, San Antonio. And we started building this class uh, from the ground up, um, and it became the Active Shooter Incident Management class, which has three out of ten rations now, uh, and, and being funded by DHS across the country. They're traveling. We travel. And during all that education about this, we learned a lot about law enforcement because we were dealing a lot, of, a lot with the guys who were gun toters and bullet slingers. And uh, the realization came to us that law enforcement doesn't utilize ICS with the discipline. And that's very important. They do utilize ICS in a lot of things, especially in large incidents. But with the discipline to be able to put it at the routine calls like the fire service does. And, and that's how we did. We taught them how to manage the scene instead of running around with everybody there and just over convergence and drowning the scene with, with people carrying guns. And one of the things that uh, what came out of this was the, the term law enforcement has to first stop the killing and then stop the dying. Those are the, those are the keys. They were doing the stopping the killing excellently. I mean, buddy, they went in there and they would, they would, uh, you know, they would uh, address that situation in a manner that was the best in operations. And then they'd got high five. That was it. People would die with that hesitation. And then they didn't know. And the fire service obviously would stage way out. We're not going in until, you know, until it's safe, until it's clear. And we, we actually recognized where that type of thinking um, no longer applied. You had to get those resources in there. And that's how we got into law enforcement. It was a very eye-opening and engaging, almost eight years. Um, the program is still going strong. Um, they're traveling all over the country. Uh, it, it's really a great program. But it really rounded out my view of incident management, incident command, and how it really does interplay with all disciplines of public safety. I interviewed uh, Chief Gott of I don't know, last week or the week before. And we were talking about the incident management system applied to large incidents or, you know, high rise buildings, specifically hotels and resorts with downtown Orange County being a mecca for tourism. And uh, there's just so many hotels. You were, you played an integral part in developing that program. And I'm, I'm saying that that's uh, Chief Gott that said that. And Hat tip by my very good friend, Jim Gott, uh, a colleague who is 
in my estimation, the master of his craft when it comes to management of high-rise incidents at the minimum, but it extends over a, a, a commitment to being able to manage the fire ground and, and manage incidents because a well-managed incident protects everybody on the scene. One that goes off the rails uh, exponentially increases the risk to those participants on that scene. And Jim is, is a master of that crap. And, and I, I smile with, with great humility on him uh, uh, saying that. Uh, I worked with Jim on some of his high-rise stuff, but uh, every time, I mean, if there was someone who had a high-rise incident, uh, he was the one that managed it. And, and uh, I learned a lot from Jim. Uh, but that's a good thing. And I, I appreciate that uh, very much. The other role that you played when uh, when working with Chief Gott was um, the unified command training that we did and was applied to the joint training that Orange County Fire Rescue and the different fire agencies around Central Florida, the Orange County Sheriff's Office and Orange County Public uh, School Board. That was some amazing training and I know that you played a role in that as well. Yes, that that was a um, that was a joint effort with the sheriff's office, and Jim was uh, part of that team that helped uh, construct that incident command system, the, the unified command system as it should be structured. And they constructed a large map. This map was done on a very large commercial printer, a plotter that was purchased with drug seized funds, and we made a map that was. I, and I, mean, I can't remember the exact dimensions, but it was something like uh, 30 by 30 feet square. And they were all these, all these maps of an area were all, you know, construed together. And we had little cars. We got in trouble. We bought um, $4,000 worth of HO size uh, or matchbox size cars and vehicles, police cars and engines and ambulances and all kinds of stuff. And when purchasing downtown got it, they absolutely lost their mind. Why are you buying toys? And we had to drag the purchasing people out to the sheriff's office headquarters, show them this big map and how we moved the players around on it before they could absolutely grasp the idea of why we needed $4,000 worth of toys. But that was a funny story. And, and you could walk on this map and uh, we called the map, the big ass map, BAM is what we called it. Um, and that was a great program. I've got a, uh, a distinguished service award from the sheriff's office. Who would think a battalion chief would get something from the sheriff's office? But I've got an award from, from the sheriff's office for that particular project. It was a large group. I, I was just one component. Um, it was a very successful program under Chief Barry and, uh, or Sheriff Barry, I should say. Uh, it was a good experience. Yeah. Jim, and Jim actually taught with C3 Passway. He was one of our uh, adjunct instructors that, that would fill in and do those things for many years until his current, uh, current position as life safety manager with uh, Marriott World Vacations uh, actually became uh, pretty much a more than full-time commitment and he couldn't teach us much but he has actually taught um, uh, since then uh, with me and alongside and he's, he's, a, he's a great guy great guy I can't, I can't speak well enough about Coral James he's a good good person <laughs> with your role in the union being a principal officer for many years and then making that transition from uh, lieutenant to battalion chief, or I'm sorry, you were an EMS captain as well, right? I actually was was the, one of the original EMS supervisors before they gave that a rank. It was when they started, and and uh, I got promoted um, 
to battalion chief before they actually solidified that as captain. As a matter of fact, probably my, my tenure as an EMS supervisor, I was a lieutenant, there was a lot of decision and indecision making about what to do with that rank, you know, adding another rank. The, the whole po political underpinnings that go with that. Um, I moved as a, I got promoted as a battalion chief before they solidified that and made it a captain. Uh, the, the role didn't change at all. They just gave him a title and, and plugged a couple of bars on him, um, or a couple more, another bugle. But uh, yeah, I, I was in, I was the, one of the first six EMS supervisors and, and that kind of stuff. And then made the transition back into company officer for a while, then promoted to battalion chief and, and made those transitions. Yeah, that's, yeah, I, I, I was a captain, just didn't call us that. <laughs> in your role, in the union, I know that the IAFF, they provide a lot of training for principal officers um, at the conventions and things like that. I don't know personally, but I would imagine some of that involved leadership training. There's a difference in your role as a lieutenant, as a EMS supervisor, and as a battalion chief. But along the way, you're developing your leadership philosophy. And as a battalion chief, I know that you were very well respected. Uh, I never actually had the, the <clears throat> privilege of working under you when, uh, when you were battalion five. I just kind of want to get an idea of your personal leadership philosophy and maybe even if, if you can recall how your current leadership philosophy is different from what it was when you were working as a battalion chief. Okay, well, let's, let's, uh, let's start from the beginning. Hopefully I'll start from the beginning here and not get sidetracked and answer your question. So don't forget that my, my age and memory always fails me. Sometimes I get on a roll. But anyway, uh, one, one of the first things that I have to really mention about leadership and, and philosophy that goes is that probably somewhere along the preparation for lieutenant and doing those extra classes, it, it dawned on me, probably something, a failure in mine, uh, mine over the years was when I first started is I tend to process thoughts, weigh the plan, come up with an action and then take it in, in not that I'm any faster than anybody else, but a lot of times as I learned and became experienced, I would make that decision tree work pretty quick. And I never really understood why. And sometimes it was off-putting to some people because I would get a few steps ahead of people around me and they would go, you know, you're running, you're rushing, you're rushing. And it's not that, it's just I'm processing. But one of the first things I learned was that without exception, we are all emotional beings. And when we're confronted with very stressful situations, maintaining, you know, a calm, uh, focused, emotional stance it's difficult because you have thousands of stressors running on your responsibility. And what I learned was there is an, a, an absolute threshold that exists between the professional response and training experience that you acquire and that threshold where you become just like everybody else on the planet, your emotions take over. And the more emotional you are, the less critical thinker you are, the less you're able to adapt to changes and you'll get tunnel vision. It immediately just brings in the world to where you are emotionally dealing with this one thing that you perceive as either a potential failure. It's going down the tracks and you don't know what you're going to do to stop it. And you can't seem to keep the train from going further and you're pursuing a bad plan 
or you just freeze up and, and just look at it like you're a deer caught in the headlights. What really occurs is that the more experience you acquire that's, that's based in good sound training, that threshold, that emotional barrier, that emotional threshold between professional response and emotional response starts to slide up, gets a little bit further up the tree before you, you know, reach overload. Uh, before the span of control starts bumping along the top, before you get uh, uh, confronted with uh, a critical situation that's going to stress you. So it's that realization that you always got to be training. You've always got to be looking back and seeing and recognizing your errors and mistakes and preparing yourself for similar like circumstances or increase your ability to manage a, an unforeseen event or a, uh, a threat that comes up out of the blue un unanticipated and that you can keep that threshold before saying, oh yeah, I got this, I got this to the oh shit, oh shit, oh shit moment. And I'm being very clear and honest, but that's exactly what it is. It's what you say to yourself. And you get caught up in a loop in that circumstance. You'll, you'll loop it over and over. What do I do? What do I do? What's the next step? What's the next step? What haven't I done? What haven't I done? And you'll spend a lot of time going on the what haven't I done instead of addressing what have I done and what's not working? And, and that's kind of my, I, I, that was my epiphany moment, that bright light of, oh my gosh. And, and once I did that, personally, I find myself making fewer, less than optimal decisions and balancing that with more um, reasoned, you know, decision-making. But uh, it was always, you know, we're emotional beings. We all have flaws and that kind of stuff. And it always affects that way. And, and it's a battle. It's a battle that doesn't end even now when, you know, in, in life. With that being said, how did you lead your, your battalion? It seems as though with that understanding, you would be more likely or more understanding when your, uh, your personnel made mistakes or on scenes maybe fumbled a little bit or maybe led you to coaching certain individuals? Well, yes, it does. You know, I, I when I first became battalion chief, I, I or, or was going to be picked, you know, before you actually get promoted. I started trying to reflect on how was I treated in my career? How would I uh, adapt to those challenges of someone who is, you know, who, who, who makes an error and, and it kind of boiled down to one of the things that I never knew is, especially when a new battalion chief became our leader, whether I was a firefighter or uh, any my, up to any of my supervisors, what does that battalion chief expect of me? And does he know what I expect of him? And I thought that was reasonable. I thought that was reasonable. So I actually uh, sat down after being promoted and I wrote down a good grief. It was a uh, almost an eight page letter to all the company officers. And I wanted them to share with the crews. And it, it boiled down to just explaining them where I felt, where I would be on disciplinary matters, what, what I expected about the rules and the SOPs and chain of command. There was a chain of command. I was always open to them and, and would discuss face to face. But anything of matters that involved policy or procedures or uh, strong good management, uh, I made sure that they 
if there was a lieutenant between me and them, that they discussed that with the lieutenant. And if they hadn't, I would invite the lieutenant in with them and say, okay, now you guys need to discuss this and I'll sit here and answer any questions, but this is between you guys first. For instance, I, I, I will say this, there was a, a paramedic who a deputy chief observed on the training ground that he had must uh, sideburns that were outside of regulation. Okay, hair and, and grooming standards are always, have always been and they will always be a sticking point between union and management and people and philosophies and people that are strict disciplinarians and rule followers and those that are a little more laissez-faire, so to speak, but there's still rules and you still have to abide by them. So this deputy chief through the assistant chief lets me know that here's a problem. I observed it needs to be addressed. So I said, okay, no problem. So um, I drove out to the station First thing I did, I went in and, and spoke with the lieutenant. I said, this is a problem. Here's the rules. Do you not agree that this is a problem? And, and the lieutenant said they agreed. And I said, now, we have to give every employee an opportunity when something like this is identified to self-correct and we move on with a new day with, with no bruises, no pinching, that kind of stuff. You know, nothing that really goes on with it. And I told him, I said, and you have to be perfectly clear this is in my chain of command. This is my responsibility. So when the deputy chief of the department calls the assistant chief and says, hey, I saw this, which the assistant chief then adds a little bit of more, you know, they've got to pretty much be in charge. And so they add a little bit of emphasis on it. And my phone rings and they said, chief, you got an issue you need to deal with. And it may not have been that strong from the deputy chief, but it came from the assistant chief that way. And I'm not going to sit there and say, oh, he's nuts. I'm going to move on down the chain, but how I manage it, because I'm down on the pointy end of the stick, is the difference between treating people, people as individuals and human beings fraught to mistakes, other than a strict disciplinarian that comes in and says, black and white, you know, it says lop their tails off, boom, here I come lopping tails off. And, and that to me always was, was uh, pretty much against my union, obviously, line of thought and that of the department. And I totally supported the department. I mean, you know, that's a tough hat to wear, but that's what I would do is I would give the, the company officer the, the strong leadership kind of suggestion to take care of it before I did. Because if he couldn't take care of it, or he or she couldn't take care of it, then I was gonna have to get involved. And I told him in the letter I wrote, buddy, I will give you every inch of the rope to hang you and give you every opportunity to self-correct. But if you put me in the position to have to really act like a battalion chief, you will not enjoy the experience. And I warned him, not warned him, I just told him, that's how it is, man. I can't change it. Take my face, put another face on front of me. It's gonna be the same. And that's how I handled um, those kind of things. And then, and, if, and, and that's a particular individual, guess what? They didn't adhere. And when I came back in the station a couple of weeks later and I went to the lieutenant and said, did this happen? I just walked through the fire station, saw this individual, and while it had changed, it still does not meet regs. And it was about the match seal. And I went in and talked to the lieutenant, brought the lieutenant in and said, this is what I observed. Now, you know, I've seen it. Or, or what do you, and I said, what do you plan to do? And the lieutenant looked at me and said, picked up the intercom, called the person in there and said, your sideburns don't match. And the person started really giving me some grief, you know, looked at me, right at me and said, I don't have to, the union says, and of course I'm the wrong person to say, the union says, I mean, you know, 
you're not going to buffalo. You wouldn't buffalo me. So I, I literally said, okay, go get your mask. Come in here. Let's see. Because if your mask will seal, then I will defend you to the people above me. But if it won't seal, we're going we're gonna to ride that pony. And they went and got it. And uh, it wouldn't seal. It wouldn't seal. And I just looked at them and went, balls in your court, dude. And that's how I handled that one. That's, and that was not just my philosophy. That was just, in my opinion, and in my opinion, the way a responsible uh, supervisor should address those things. You know, uh, my union days taught me, if you give the people enough rope, even when you're trying to defend their rights and everything, if they're the kind of person that's not going to respond to it, they're going to hang themselves. And, and that, that obviously was, was proven out over the, over the course of my career. A lot fewer times than you might expect. That answers your question. <laughs> yes, sir. In your in your time in the in the fire service, and, and actually you touched on this, you mentioned the fight or flight, you know, getting hijacked by your amygdala, essentially, where you know your body releases all all these uh endorphins, serotonin, uh, adrenaline, oh crap, it's gonna bite me responses <laughs> in, in those moments we have an opportunity to view the situation through eyes of a professional someone with extensive training and that's that's actually in my opinion well i i think it's more scientific fact but with that training and previous experience you're able to anchor yourself and your decision making process in safety allowing you to be more effective when you know charged with mitigating uh, a certain situation so throughout your time in in the fire service can you recall a major incident that that really pushed you to to your limits and maybe it's an incident that you carried with you throughout your career and helped anchor you in on future incidents? I would have to say, while I can remember incidents, incidents throughout my career that I look back on and, and would say, wow, what did I learn from that one? That didn't progress quite as well. Uh, you know, one of the things about being a paramedic my entire career is you're, you're, you're making decisions that hold a, a consequence in the balance. Being a paramedic, that's somebody's health or their, or their future, their life. And that kind of prepared me for those days where it wouldn't be just a singular patient, but would be the people that were on the scene. Um, the, you know, the, the, the crews that were actually going into the building or being surrounded the building. And there have been circumstances that I've always looked back and said, oh, I didn't act as well as I thought. I wasn't quite the sharp guy, sharp paramedic that I thought I was because, holy crap, look at the things I missed. Now, you know, by the, by the grace of, uh, of God and his hand kept me from making, you know, a mistake that I would regret. And I never harmed anybody or, or anything like that. But there was always things that I, I held at performance level you know, way up here. And then sometimes I didn't quite climb to that point. And that goes back to being a human being. Um, I do recall the, the, the most critical situation that literally caught me flat-footed 
Chief Gott was on the scene along with Chief Robert Lee, who you recognize both those names. They were Battalion 4 and Battalion 3, respectively, to the west of me from my battalion. And I was third alarm chief in on the warehouse fire on the first day of March in 2007. And that date's ingrained in my mind because of this circumstance where a, a warehouse was on fire. And this was a warehouse, a large warehouse, a butler style metal uh, steel beam roof construction that was filled with props and scenery for the studios for Universal. Uh, some and this was a company that provided for Universal and Disney. So there was all kinds of of uh, increased fire load inside this building. Chief Lee and Chief Gott, or the, uh, Chief Lee was the first one on the scene. He called a second alarm. Chief Gott got there and they had their command situation. I mean, these are two guys who were stellar in the uh, command school that, that and, and were part, along with me, of another team of chiefs, developed the, the department's incident command school. They were already on the, on the ground. They were, you know, managing. I listened to the radio, obviously. And as I was going into third alarm, I was really going, and yeah, I'm going to get canceled. I'm going to get canceled. These guys have got this thing on their hand. You know, the smoke color had changed, the pressure coming out of the building. Uh, they had crews inside that were taking care of areas and I could listen to the whole thing. It didn't really seem like, it seemed like that my two stellar brothers on the other, on the battalions had it under control and I was coming in because they were hedging their bet. You know, one of the things that we had uh, between the three of us was call for us, man. If you think you need us, you call for us because you can always turn me around. Don't, don't listen to this stuff. Why did you need them? Well, because I thought I did. It was that simple. So I was rolling in and I got there and, and a long story, but I had to, you know, I got out and I put all my gear on, you know, I was going a third alarm. So you didn't walk up the command post in your street clothes. So I put all my crap on, right? And I lugged down to where the command post was and I look up, I'm walking in front of them and they look at me and they go like this and they were talking, everything looked normal. And I had just, just walked up to the command post and I felt it more than hurt it, a thump. Uh, it was a pressure thump. It was almost like getting hit with a, with a, uh, a pressure wave from an explosion and not that bad. I didn't make it off my feet, but it was a, I felt it. And I turned around and looked at the building and heavy black smoke under pressure. I mean, it's literally just beginning to come out of the eaves and start up into the atmosphere. And I turned right around and looked at Jim Gott and, and Robert Lee. And the only time I've ever seen both of them, their eyes wide open and their mouths open, looking at the building going, and it had that, oh shit moment look on their face. Just for that split instant, they both went in the rolls, started calling, you know, we've had a you know, hostile event occurred. So they started calling, we had crews and had, we had both squads on the scene, two of the three squads on the scene. Then there were full three alarms with equipment and people, and we had crews inside this warehouse. I mean, we had, I don't remember, but it was something like, we had like six or seven engine companies, one of the squads inside, a truck company, two, two truck companies inside. I mean, it was a lot of people inside. Plus, we had people in staging, and they turned at me, and they said, you've got writ. And I said, okay. And at that moment, at that very instant, the thing within my mind is, oh shit, now what do I do? At that point, I don't think I was up to that threshold of professionalism and emotional, but I was dadgum close because I recognized that a lot of my friends were inside that building. A lot of people that now I'm responsible for. At that moment, thank goodness, I fell back on the depth of my training, my experiences, and 
went and took care of the rich the red teams, I should say, because I think I developed four before the situation, you know, circ you know, circumstances, everybody got out and we got a, a car done and everybody was okay. Uh, engine 70 was uh, unaccounted for, for probably a good three minutes, but we were uh, cruising side, we were able to get all evacuated. They had, they had, uh, during the, during the event, they had all messed up their radios or got, it didn't matter. We got everybody out. And then at that point, it really came down to a lot lesser situation, but I can assure you for, you know, a, a number of seconds, um, the, the gravity of the situation bumped up against my leadership skills on that one. And it, it was uh, one that I'll never forget because I really was afraid that we were gonna lose some very good, valuable people in that circumstance. But there's, there's the most, the, the one that comes most to mind at this time, 12 years after retirement. One thing that ha has turned out to be somewhat of a theme with many of my guests is calls that, ha that have stayed with us as far as like a, a traumatic incident, something that, that to this day, you know, you, you don't really understand why it pops into your head, but it does. And there is a connection with, with that and your ability to maintain um, your command presence when, when faced with similar circumstances. You know, it could be just, you know, as simple as running a, a call where a young person is not going to survive and they remind you of one of your children or a relative. But I mean, you understand where I'm going with this. Is there a, a call that stays with you? To be fair, David, there are many calls that stay with me. Um, we all, and especially if I was pure fire service and, and had not and just been an EMT and, and, and never had been a paramedic where, where I was in direct responsibility of taking care of somebody, you know, poking holes in them and putting tubes in. I may have had lesser experiences, but, you know, typically the paramedic, even when I was on an engine company as the engineer paramedic, and it was a, not an ALS engine, it was a BLS engine, and I would roll in, my lieutenant would say, hey, we're first one in, dude. You're, you're the first one to the patient. Doesn't matter about this engine. I got a relief driver back here to take care of that. I need you to grab the EMS kits and go do what you can do. So throughout my career, I was on the point of that sphere a lot. The one circumstance that that I always remember are those those uh, childbirth circumstances that were complex or had were going wrong that stick with me. I mean, I could sit here and bore you with stories, but we'd have to have several beers to do that about those circumstances. And I try to take away from them, you know, the good points of that and things and things if I made mistakes. But there are a lot of we carry a lot of ghosts on our on our shoulders that whisper to us, and hopefully, and 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 by luck, uh, even if you don't believe in those kind of things, I, I do, that there are, there are times that those little ghosts whisper in my ear and say, Dave, listen close, you're, you're flirting with a, a problem here that you've been to before. Now remember, you need to do something else a little better. And they happen much quicker than I can verbalize, but we all carry those. And, I, and you know, um, uh, one particular, you know, I never really had great emotional responses to it until after I got home. My wife will tell you stories of many times I came home and hugged our kids. 
And if you're not, unless you're a cold hearted, narcissistic individual who doesn't really care about anybody else, uh, these things will happen to anybody who's in emergency services. But I can remember an extrication way out on the east side of the county uh, where this uh, woman, you know, in, in her late 20s, I believe, who that one of those real bad smashers, you know, that just crumple metal all around somebody. And while she was still making efforts to breathe and try to, you know, appeared to be on the edge of death when we first got there, we wouldn't have been able to unwrap her until Christmas. You know, she was trapped that bad. And as we, she, she died in front of us. Um, and as we got the car opened up and out to where we could do body recover, she, she was pregnant. And, uh, you know, the amount of effort that the entire extrication team put forth, the, the bending of rules to accomplish a task, you know, things that you're told to do when you're doing extrications and don't do that because this is what could result. And when you exhaust all the good things you're supposed to do and you still haven't made any progress, you start improvising. And sometimes that means kind of stretching the bounds of, of good standard of practice, so to speak. And we had to do that just to try to get to her because we believe that maybe she was salvageable. And then at the end of the day, it wasn't. And that, that one does stick with me a little bit. That one, um, that one, you know, when I reflect on it, does, does cause a little pull on the heartstrings. The only comfort that I can take is that I did everything I could. Uh, out in the same area, we had a, one of the other times, we had a, a, a young man who took his Ford F-150 and hit head on into a, a, a commercial sized vehicle, trapped the driver of that vehicle in who was in track pretty bad. But his vehicle was literally bent into a U-shape. The Ford truck was bent into a U from the, from the impact and on its side. I went down to that vehicle and looked inside and there's this young man uh, pushing on the steering wheel. He's trapped from the, from the midline of his admin down in the wreckage. He's trying to push himself out. He's not talking. He's not really looking at things. He's just, he's pushing. And I get up and I touch his neck and feel the pulse go away. Um, okay, we've all seen that. I didn't sit there and go, oh my God, this is horrible. I said, nope, can't spend our time here. Need to go down the street where somebody's alive. Two months later, out of the blue, I'm sitting in the office at Station 82 and I get a call, we get a call down through the chain of command that a man has been approved to contact us directly. He's the father of that son and wants to talk to the first paramedic that got to him. And the department gave their, gave their okay if I wanted to. And I thought, sure, I'll do it. So the man spoke to me. He wanted to know if his son had any last words. And was he alive when I, at first, was he alive when I got to him? And I said, yes, sir, he was, but not for long. And he said, did he say anything to you? And it broke my heart to tell him that no, he did not verbally say anything to me. And that man was looking for comfort. Now, there is that argument, you can be a compassionate individual to say, you know, yeah, he said something, just tell my family I love them. I could have made up all kinds of stories and it would have granted that man uh, probably some comfort. But then again, my moral compass wouldn't allow me to lie to the man which in retrospect would have been just as horrible if I'd have made up something and I had to tell him the truth. No, he did not. That one is another one. I wish, I, you know, it's one of those things where I wish the guy had said something before he died. I, I wish he'd been, you know, uh, 
hydraulically pressured enough, you know, had enough enough perfusion in his brain and conscious enough to have, you know, verbalized something to me. But you know, that's lost forever, and it didn't happen. And I could not, I could not compromise my moral compass by lying to the man. And that kind of hurts me, you know. I'm I, I'm a compassionate. I, I believe I'm a compassionate man and have some empathy for people and would tr try to put myself in their shoes and. And that one, that's another one that kind of sticks with me. So we don't really want to go down the path of all those little things, but there are two examples of, of circumstances that happened that did, did affect me. And, and, and also directly or indirectly, whether I want to admit it or not, exists in that experiential tray set of, of things that contributes upstream to where I am today. And you, you can't escape that. Knowing what you know about the fire service. Well, I'd probably be a better carpenter. No. <laughs> well, knowing what you know about the fire service and, and the experiences that anybody coming into the fire service, it's inevitable that, that you're going to experience these traumatic events and, and you're going to become emotionally invested. And those things are going to stay with you. For somebody that is aspiring to be a firefighter or somebody that has just entered the fire service, what advice would you give them? Well, you know, advice is a, is a dangerous path sometimes. And, and I, I uh, you know, you, you can give advice to loved ones. Be cautious when you give advice to people who are just acquaintances. I, and I kind of live that. But I, if I could offer some a thought on what it would take as a, a new firefighter is take advantage of all the education you can around the craft that you can, whether it's professional or personal. The path of mastery of the fire service and all of its myriad components and responsibilities, and this, this translates to public safety, so it, it's almost interchangeable. Gathering that education and that training will solidify your ability to adapt to those challenges that you get presented with. And, and you will re realize that a, a particular, particular path is a good one or not so good. And also be humble enough to, and sometimes brave enough to choose a better path midstream. You know, that old adage, you know, don't change horses, you know, midstream. Well, eh, that's when you're dealing with someone's health and safety in life or, or, or property and you choose a bad path very honestly, you know, you may have said, oh, this is the, this is, this is my goal. This is how I got to get there. But somewhere along the line, you bump up in a wall you can't cross or a circumstance that presents itself you didn't have any knowledge of. And it prevents you from obtaining those goals. Sometimes you got to have a little bit of bravery to say, crap, I got to get off the horse and get on that one over there. And that's a skill set that's learned. It's a skill. It, it's, it's a, it's a philosophy that Hopefully you can learn early on that, that nothing in this is cut and dried. You're talking, it wouldn't be called an emergency if it was planned. And if it wasn't for stupid human tricks, the fire service and law enforcement wouldn't have much of a career. So people are gonna do those kind of things. And, and when you're dealing with that, you've gotta be able to, to adapt, uh, improvise, and still stay within a certain standard of operating procedure or standard of care, or just the professionalism at the same time, but that's tough. And those aren't, you're not born with that. That doesn't happen when you pop out a mama. Those are acquired skills, acquired traits. And some people never do, you know, you always gotta have worker bees. 
and very few queens in the hive. And when all the queens, the hives start raising hell, then people are going to start shedding those queens, right? But everybody's got to everybody's got to get along and do those kind of things, and you learn them through life. So that that's about the best kind of guidance I would could offer to a young firefighter, or, or even a police officer, or a, a new EMT or paramedic getting into a uh, to, to public safety. What you just said has, has a lot of value and I appreciate you going down that path. But what I was, what I was looking for was, and I'm going to give you a, a personal example. When I first came on in April of 99, I think I hit the field in June, June of 1999. I went to station 73, which is, you know, it's not known for its volume of calls. One thing that that I did get there was some really good calls, some traumatic calls. You know, the the straight chauffeur, they parked their their circus train right down the road and the carnival work, workers were uh, I mean, that was pretty eye-opening running on them because that's a that's a different breed of person. There was uh, a woman who was pregnant her soon-to-be born child. The, the father was one of the uh, ride workers. For whatever reason, I, I guess in their minds, they thought it would be, you know, something really cool to, you know, allow the baby to be born on that train. And uh, delivery was imminent. You know, it was coming. We, we went there earlier in the day and we knew that she needed to go to the hospital and we told her like, look, you're going to give birth very soon. Oh, well, we've got women here. And we were back, I don't know, maybe four hours later. And crowning, I bet. it was, it was worse than that. It oh, was, no. No, um, I've been there. I, I, yes. It was a, it was a breach delivery where <sighs> The, the baby's head was still inside the mother's womb and it was a, you know, the umbilical cord was wrapped around the infant's And breach. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever been on one of those, it was a, a living quarters car on, you know, part of this train. Essentially a single wide trailer. Right. Uh, but, but even narrower. Right. And, and there was multiple rooms the actual living quarters for this woman was a closet. Yeah. And we've got two engine companies and a rescue that amount of people in this room trying to, uh, affect a delivery, a, a delivery. and a complex delivery, which is difficult under the best circumstances, even with an emergency episiotomy, uh, we could not free the baby's head and we transported to, to the hospital. And, you know, I stayed with the woman. She wouldn't let go of my hand. When the baby was extricated from the mother's... Uh, the delivery was mechanically completed. Yes. The, I, I don't laugh because I'm, 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 I'm flipping on your stories. Just... No. Here, man. I know. The, the baby had, had already passed. And it, uh, you know, I watched this woman break. The very next shift, see, I remember this because it was a series of shifts, just one right after the other. So the next shift, it was a, uh, an 18-year-old 
um, young man on a motorcycle who a plumbing truck had pulled out in front of him and another car that were traveling. It didn't even stop at the stop sign and tried to clear uh, the roadway to get into the median. Both the car and the motorcycle hit the plumbing truck. The plumbing truck rolled multiple times. The driver of that plumbing truck was out of the vehicle walking around without a scratch on him when we arrived on scene. The driver of the car had bilateral uh, radius ulna fractures, compound fractures, and the kid on the motorcycle was laying in a pool of his own blood, helmet still on, but it looked like somebody had hit the center of it with a machete. When we removed the helmet, his face split open, his brain wasn't inside his skull. Uh, we ended up seeing it on the roadway in pieces. That was the first time I ever felt somebody's body that just felt like a sack of rocks. There wasn't a solid bone in his body. And then the following shift, we had a woman who had brought her infant to bed with her and her husband was a huge mountain of a man, probably 300 pounds, six foot eight. He had rolled and didn't feel the baby underneath him. And when we arrived, the baby was deceased. I watched that mountain of a man break in his front yard. Those sounds that people make when they lose some, something very dear to them is very animalistic, very guttural. That has stayed with me throughout my career. But it wasn't until the next morning that we, we were alerted by uh, somebody that ran up to the front of the station and said, hey, some kid just got hit by a car right there. So, I mean, we're one block from Orange Avenue. This group of middle schoolers crossing Orange Avenue to go to their bus stop. They all ran, but the 12-year-old girl who was a little heavy set couldn't run as fast as the rest of them, and she got creamed. And when we got there, she had that, like you said, that young man that was trying to push himself from behind the, the steering wheel, that panic look, that blank stare or that, that like they're trying to get away from something. She was crawling away from the car that hit her. Both of her shoes were probably 60, 60 feet away. Her right leg was almost all the way severed. Just a, a piece of flesh held it on and it was dragging behind her. When we got back to the station, I was on A shift at that time. A shift and B shift sat down at the table. Th this series of calls was playing in my head and I'm like, man, you know, this is, this is incredible. Like I can only imagine what a career of this will do to somebody. And so I asked the guys sitting at the table there in the Bay at 73, we just ran all these calls. Like, do, do any of the calls in your career bug you? You know, and, and like, how do you deal with it? One guy who, uh, he wasn't assigned there. He was an older lieutenant. He was a very well-respected lieutenant. He, he was sitting at the table and he pushed himself away from the table and just went, Jesus Christ. 
you're you what do you got like a week on the job and you're already whining like maybe you ought to think about choosing another career path buddy because if you're already thinking about this stuff you might not be cut out for it actually i could guarantee you that if you're already whining you're not cut out for this job i said well no i mean i just i'm good i just thought that over time this has got to add up but if you're saying that you know it doesn't then okay cool there are there have been and there probably still exists flaws in leadership regarding the emotional impacts of seeing someone in a circumstance that 99 percent of other people will never see and have no relation on what that impact is not only to the responders that see these horrible events, but the empathy and compassion for the families of those involved. And we as professional responders, you know, I remember the very first call I went on as a paid professional. I remember very vividly the first suicide I went on by gunshot. And these were done in 1976, 77. And I'm, it's 2020 and I still remember them vividly as if I went to them yesterday. I virtually can recall those circumstances where I've seen people in, you know, I, how many guys carry a severed head to put in a body bag, a decapitation. If you spend, and this is what the fire service, well, actually any public safety that responds to these kinds of emergencies are never prepared. They're never given the, the uh, coping tools. They're never told that even before, I mean, if they're in training, if they're in minimums or their standards before they take the job or, or on their, in their first 90 days of their career are not brought somewhere with professionals, that lieutenant, and I remember a bunch of them that were down there and I can see exactly, I can describe to you exactly those responses, which are um, a defensive, not defensive, struggling for the word, but those are coping mechanisms for what they've seen in the years past and was what worked for them. In other words, it doesn't bother me. Why should it bother you? And if it bothers you, you should you be there? And I'll guarantee you, I will guarantee you that if you strip away the years of experience from that lieutenant and take him back to his first few months on the job, he had incidents that did touch him and he cataloged them, put them back, did whatever he did with him, make it right with himself and move forward. That is a poor way to cope with those kinds of emotional distress. Now I'm by no means, am I a psychologist or a psychiatrist and I don't, don't play one on TV, but it's my perception from experience and training and, and all the mountains of daggum certificates I've got that really are just that paper now. We don't prepare our youngest members, our most vulnerable members, the members that are trying to take this more than a job to make a career, to prepare themselves for the difficult births, the people who are literally splattered on the side of the highway. I mean, I'm talking splattered. Uh, uh, skydivers who become a dented hole in the ground and they're just pretty much a puddle. People get hit by trains. You know, I, I always baffled me. This is a little bit of lightness in this discussion, but how do you get in front of a train? I mean, you know exactly where it is. The tracks go down the road. You know a train will occupy it. Mass versus the weight means you're going to lose. I can't think of anywhere I'd rather sleep than on a railroad track. 
So I, I, I never, I, I, it baffled me on how people got hit by trains. Now I know being around some, doing some training with people in public transportation to handle trains, we did some stuff with that. They put spotters there. You know, you may see six guys around, around the train tracks working, but they have one guy who just looks down the track at all time because they will sneak up on you and you won't hear them. That's hard to believe, but that's been proven. I can see people getting hit, but the ones that are just standing in the middle of the road always bothered me. But they're the ones, kind of like motorcycle wrecks, that fare very poorly with that little bit of contact between two part, you know, two masses coming coming to place at the same point in time. Something's going to give, and unfortunately, if it's a human being, they're going to they're going to discard all of that. And dealing with that horror, and that's exactly what it is. Don't don't try to try to sugarcoat it as it's uh, part of the job or you got to be strong or this is the way it is. This is hard. You would go pay money to go to a, a movie to see this stuff, but this is real life. You didn't pay money. You're getting paid money to go deal with the circumstances surrounding. We don't care for that psychological impact that probably is some little festering ball of in my head somewhere that someday will come out and I'll become a giggling mass maybe, but it's still the fact that these are indelible events on the person's psyche. And if you want a good employee for a length of a career, it's more than just providing health care and a uniform and protective gear and a bunch of rules you got to follow. You got to look at them too, because they're the resource. Take them out of the equation. You don't have a department. You don't have responders. And we do those things and, and we don't, we don't care for them. Yes, absolutely. Like I said, sometime over beer, sometime when we don't have a time frame, I've got them. I've, I've got them. Everyone with any experience with a department that handles lots of calls, more than 365 individual calls a year, if you, if you go on more than one call a day, you're going to come up against something that is, is, is horrific on a good day. And, and it's, it's going to make an impression. You can't just walk in, take a snapshot, let on table, walk away. And it's not surprising to me that during the session following these chain of events, that it was, it, it got couched in that environment. And that is, day what you relate to me is a very, very um, unfortunate and really sad kind of posture. There really is no place for that in good leadership uh, in today's world. It, it, it didn't exist then. That follows in to being an effective and respected leader requires someone to have the initiative to hone not only their, their didactic command skills, but they must hone their, their personal skills, their, their own compassion, their own level of empathy, and balance that with a firmness of leadership without being harsh without being arrogant that I know all and you don't. Arrogance is not your friend. The only thing that's your friend in these circumstances is confidence, you know, and learning how to be decisive without acting too quick. Just taking a few seconds to, to pause and reflect on what the circumstances is and then identifying how do you make this have the most positive outcome. D-Day on June 6, 1944. And I'm, I'm, I'm a student of history. It's a shame. Sometimes it drives my wife crazy. But, you know, Hitler was told about the invasion. All right. You know, he, the, the, the command state, the command, all the, all the generals up to 
Rommel and all those people, they, they knew about it, knew the invasion was there, knew it was going to be the invasion. And Hitler was asleep. They weren't going to wake him up. Why? Because he was the leader. So that hesitation allowed the Allied forces to take a hold. Now, he didn't hear about it till like noon the next day. And then he hesitated again. And because of those hesitations, when he, should, when he had good information, resulted in the Allied victory on, on D-Day and, and the days and months that followed. That was a point of arrogance that got in the way, hubris. And, and those are things, characteristics that I think uh, on a much smaller form does affect us now. You know, the arrogance and hubris that I am the master of all I see in the, in the universe I live in which is a false pretense to live under. And it affects leadership. It affects leadership terribly. So, yeah, you're right. You know, a week of bad crap, uh, seeing things that people don't see is we're emotional beings. You, you, there's no way you're insulated to it. And I would challenge that lieutenant. Had, that is how he catalogs all those horrible things. And, and, and I disagree that that would be a, positive way to look at things. I think that is just, uh, that is someone who didn't know what to do, didn't know how, never had any guidance on how to deal with those situations. And, and as we all would do, formed his posture based on his experiences and how he handled it and felt like, well, if I can do it, you can do it, or he can do it, or she can do it that same way. And then they, and then they overlay that with a mark of, of bravado and machoism that if you can't take it, you need to get out. Yeah, and that's 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 degrading. That's a that's a bad posture to take, would be in my opinion. But at the end so of the day, just how, be so good. How how have you dealt with those things? Um, how how about this? Hypothetically, say you were that lieutenant at Station Seventy Three that day. What? What advice would you have given me? Oh, being taking Dave Egan today and taking him back and parking him in 73 at that desk. Oh, wow. I, this is an, an interesting exercise, and, and it would be just that. I, 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 um, I can give you my best impression, but I, I you know, in 1999-2000, um, we had a critical stress debriefing team that was in place. Uh, Pat Brandt was a member of that team, along with several other people that were well-respected, knowledge and educated in this. Um, having them at the table would have been one of the first things uh, I would have arranged prior to us having them together. Uh, this apparently, since both shifts were there, this was done at shift change. Yes. Uh, well, and then you got the effort, I, I want to get my butt out of the station. I don't want to be here. You're not paying me. You know, why are you doing this to me? I'm going to say whatever it is to shorten this time as much as possible. I mean, that, I know that existed. So you had to be brief. You had to be smart. And you had to get your point across in a minimal amount of time. What would I have done? Well, the critical stress debriefing team would have definitely been involved. So we could have got individual counseling for that. But instead of pushing back from the table and saying, you need, in front of everybody, in front of two shifts, in front of, Let's see, that would have been 73, would have been three, been six guys, six or seven guys max. I don't know if they had the tanker down there manned or not, but anyway, six or seven guys max. I would not have said that in front of the crew to an individual. That would have been an office talk. By doing that in front of the crew is almost the distasteful be as I am 
you know, kind of deal, which, which is how I would have approached it. But, you know, having the crew two shifts around like that, uh, I, I kind of challenged two shifts because one shift was evolved, one shift wasn't. Why is that off shift even evolved other than the knowledge that it occurred? Uh, this, seemed, this seemed to be kind of a quasi bitch session. Yeah, I mean, uh, really. Of that. Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, I was a young firefighter, didn't even have. A month's yeah. work, two months. Anytime in your first year, you know, they, this is a cumulative thing. You know, each call begets the next call. Each call teaches certain lessons. Each call has its implications, its, 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 its impact, and they accumulate. There's not, they don't, they're not mutually exclusive. They don't stand alone in their own vacuum. You know, that, that, that's the truth. None of these do. That's what you're working with, that cumulative gain of knowledge and experience, and hopefully you buttress that with, with training. Um, you get mentorship from people who are uh, of the mindset to be mentors. You make you do make lemonade out of lemons, but you do it in such a manner that everybody takes a drink with a smile on their face. Does that make sense? A little bit of sugar in there, and, and that's what what all public safety has to deal with. I mean, what what does public safety respond to? But the worst day, in any, and we've heard this, the worst day of anybody's life, and, and preparing for that is something that we that the individual can strive for, but requires leadership. Requires not only requires but demands that that these things are addressed and, and honed shift the focus of com rule compliance and marching by the set of orders in a in a sop or following a treatment protocol following what the the, the chain of command demonstrates by their acts is that that we've got to take care of the whole not just the individual and we can't just discard people because they're having a challenge. Uh, and from what you described, those are challenging. I mean, complex births, I've had them. I've had breech births. I've had, I've had uh, limb presentations, uh, placenta previous, uh, abruptio placentas. Got them, got them, and talk about them, what I did good and what I didn't do so well. People hit my cars. I mean, good grief. Uh, UPS truck, guy gets thrown out, guy loses control, flips, gets ejected out the, out of the car is on on one knee his hands down he looks up and there's a ups double truck coming across the bridge and he's like right there well it did not bode well for him you know i i i, I feel that i understand that and unfortunately i i think that um departments live in a very constrained timeline you know someone's career uh 25 years or 30 years or however long it is and once they get past a certain point, year three, four, five, or six, and a little personal story on that, you know, I strove in my very early career to be the absolute, I, to be so good that not only could I not, and I got arrogant, not only could I not be challenged on my decisions as far as taking care of a patient, but I would critique other people pretty harshly. And that's what happens in those first six years of someone's career is that they start obtaining mastery of skills at different levels at different times. And as they get to a certain point, they become insufferable because they believe that they are masters of the craft when in fact they aren't. And until someone gets them off in the corner and bops them on the head a little bit and wakes them up, they will not grow any further than that. And recognizing that from a personal level, opened up many opportunities for me. And I realized that, yeah, you ain't, ain't, sharp. You ain't the sharpest 
you know, knife in the drawer, you have some skills, bud, but you got a long way to go before you can say you've mastered them. And I still think that I, I still pursue that mastery of skill. I, I think that's a, maybe not an unobtainable bar, but um, it is one that's, that's there. Um, Colin Powell once said, and I hope I get this right. It's maybe, let me just qualify that with a paraphrase. He said something like leadership is the art of accomplishing more than the science of management says is possible. And let that think in a little bit, you know, to take what you, what the science says and say, this is good, but that's where it stops. It doesn't tell you how to be a great leader. And, and those are things that, uh, those little tidbits that kind of pop up and, and in the background without conscious thought affect decision-making. We're, we're coming to the end. I, I was wondering if um, there was anything that, that I should have asked you that I just didn't know enough to, to ask you that uh, maybe some parting words to, to share with some aspiring leaders or you know, leaders that are striving to be better. So you're wanting me to philosophize a little bit. I've been accused of my kids that um, if you ask me what time it is, I'll tell you how to build a clock so you can tell yourself. And they do that all the time, especially if they get me off on one of these little tangents. And I've had a, at the end of the day, the quest for excellence. And well, let me back up a minute. Embers in the beginning is that you must learn your craft. You must continue to strive and, and learn as much as you can have the ability to interrogate uh, things that bring question to your mind. Find out why you question that. Um, uh, look for a mentor. Look for someone who has respect, someone who shares your viewpoints on a lot of things, but also demonstrate compassion and empathy and ability to listen. Uh, as you progress through your career, you know, develop a passion to be the best you can and be so good that people can't ignore you. Just be so good that people can't ignore you. Don't, don't do crazy crap that, that degrades from what you're doing. You know, don't, you know, own your mistakes, learn from them, you know, and your path to mastering your skills and you gain that experience. What occurs is wisdom. Uh, wisdom is only gained through experience. Uh, you, you, you're, not born, you're not born with wisdom. Uh, gray hair doesn't necessarily immediately apply wisdom to you, but the good leader absolutely holds personal job ex ex expectations to pass lessons, both good and not so good. So you have to learn from those life, set, life lessons. You, know, you, you learn and you, you, you experience ways to be smarter and more nimble based on those experiences. Um, don't ever think that your position is, is unimpeachable, that you have risen to the point that someone cannot question you. Um, that goes to any teacher, an instructor, writer, scientist, anybody, a subject matter, matter expert who is, who, these people must be able to go back on their word. They must be able to retreat from a posture. They must be able to, to say a position that I held or I said a moment ago in reflection isn't quite as good as it should be. It really should be something like this because in, in front of people, you're, you're showing that you're human, that you do make mistakes and errors. That way your credibility is improved. Um, especially when, when there's new evidence or a better technique or an idea, um, you just sometimes have to simply admit 
crap, I made a mistake. Uh, that has a lot to do with improving your own personal character, but, but reflects that outwardly. It's a long, hard battle that you'll personally make or anybody will make toward truth, toward gaining effectiveness, gaining additional learning. But most importantly, the side unaspired for benefit, and it's something that has to be earned, is that respect of your peers. And that is gauged on your actions, um, that, that is based on your character and based on how you handle people. If you handle them with respect and make them appear, make them hold them in value like they should be is a cornerstone of good leadership. That's about all I can say about that. <laughs> to, to quote Forrest Gump. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm probably closer to him than I am to most anybody. <laughs> uh, well, Chief, thank you so much for talking with me today. This has been this has been an awesome conversation. It was really great to reconnect with you. I know that I'm stepping away from from this camera uh, a little more enlightened uh, than when I sat down. So I have no doubt that whoever listens to this is is going to to gain some value from it. So I really David, I'm very it. pleased that that uh, that I've been able to give a plant a little little pearl of something. Uh, and I appreciate your kind words. It's, it's humbling. And you know what? Uh, this is more than a career. Here I am 12 years post-retirement. And I still look back on my career with great fondness, life experiences that I would not have gotten in any other way. And I have personal rewards from delivering babies, healthy babies, to saving people's. And you have to admit this. I mean, I, I, it's not you know hubris to do this, but there are people that are alive that were part of the, that, that result of some great teamwork. And I look back on that as, as, a, uh, as a good experience. And, and this is good too, you know, this is cathartic to me. So I appreciate the opportunity, Dave, very much. And uh, you can invite me back in the future if you so feel the need. Awesome. I love to you and everyone out there. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbockleadership.com for additional content. Dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible. So if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the homepage of his website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.